Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Inside Intercom. We may not realize it in the moment, but there are certain products in our lives that are inherently habit-forming. For me, living on the West Coast, it's the need to discover what's going on in the world as soon as I wake up in the morning, which leads me to pop open Twitter. For you, it could be impulsively slacking a question to your coworker instead of writing that email, or keeping your language learning streak going on Duolingo. Some of these habits, of course, are healthier than others. And in this episode, we'll be looking into how to design patterns of behavior that actually set up users for success in their lives. Joining me in conversation to explain just that is Nir Eyal. Nir studies behavioral design, which sits at the intersection of tech, business, and psychology. He's most widely known, though, for writing the best-selling book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Nir's also taught at Stanford and shares his latest research frequently on his blog, nearandfar.com. He's also an active investor in technologies that he thinks are putting this to good use. My chat with Nier explains why the best product doesn't necessarily win. When I need to look up something, before I scan my brain, I'm Googling it. With little or no conscious thought, purely out of habit. The types of products that benefit most from his hooked framework. A lot of times people will say, does this only apply to consumer web? The same exact rules apply. The exact same four steps of trigger, action, reward, investment apply to the enterprise as well. The line of demarcation is not necessarily enterprise or consumer web. The line is frequent or infrequent. That's really the key criteria. And perhaps most importantly, how to apply all of this thinking ethically. If the user knew everything that we knew about what is about to happen, would they still do this behavior? And you can test that, just like we do user testing with all sorts of different design ideas. If you like what you hear from Nier, check out our full library of more than 100 Inside Intercom conversations to date. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, SoundCloud, you name it. So just subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And with that, let's hop in the studio where I'm joined on the line by Nier Eyal. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Nir, welcome to Inside Intercom. You're writing not just about the hooked framework and user retention, but also the responsibilities we have to our users has been a really big inspiration for us at Intercom. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. That's so nice of you to say. Thank you. So just to set up our chat and really give a foundation to any listeners who may be less familiar with your work, can you give us a brief rundown of your career to date? I mean, how did you come to focus on behavioral design? Sure. So I spent a lot of time in the gaming and advertising industries, and I helped start two companies. Uh, and you know, in the intersection of those two industries, I learned a lot about what influences people's behavior. You know, advertisers don't spend that money for their health, and uh, gaming companies understand what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. And so, at the intersection of those two industries, I learned a whole lot about how to change people's behaviors. Uh, online. And so that was kind of where I I learned many of the techniques that I described in Hooked. Uh, The reason I wrote the book was because I wanted to take these techniques that have been kind of the realm of social networks and games and advertisers and unlock it for everyone else so that everyone building any sort of product that uh, improves people's lives, that helps them build healthy habits, can use the same psychology to help people do the kind of things they want to do but for lack of good product design, don't do. And so that's really why I wrote this book. I didn't find where that book uh, existed, and so I decided to write it myself. Awesome. And as you mentioned, Hooked came out back in 2014, not that long ago, but in the world of software, certainly feels like quite a long time ago. 
at the foundation of the book and at the hooked framework itself are habits. So I'm curious, how are you defining habits? And for us as users, are habits naturally beneficial to us? Well, we have good habits and bad habits. And so it's very different from like an addiction. So an addiction is not what my book is about. Uh, I can always tell when someone hasn't read my book because they start calling me, you know, the addiction guy and how do you create addictions? And that's not what we do. Addictions are something that is defined as a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior substance that harms the user. And so we would never want to build for addiction. Why would we want to harm our users? That's that's horrible. Uh, However, habits are something that we have that is very beneficial. We have lots of habits that help us live our day-to-day lives. About 40% of what we do, in fact, is done out of habit. Of course, we have some bad habits as well that we can learn to to break through some of the techniques that I I teach in in my first book, Hooked, and that I'm going to teach in my next upcoming book, Indistractable. But from a, a, a design perspective, from a product perspective, If we can help build habits in people's lives, healthy habits in our users' lives, then we can help them live better. And so that's really the the core of of why I do what I do is that there's so many products out there that that are built with the best intentions and that users just never use. And so you can't build a big business. You can't improve people's lives if they don't use your product. Exactly. <laughs> so that's really the core of my work is how do you get people to actually use the products that would benefit them if they only engaged with them? So the psychology behind your framework, the idea of a trigger leading to an action, a reward and an investment and circling back all over again, I mean, that certainly holds true. But in the years that have passed since the book originally came out, how is your thinking on the topic as a whole evolved? The basic model, you know, hasn't changed at all because the, the, the model draws upon very old psychology, you know, B.F. Skinner and Bandura and, uh, you know, folks who have been around for, for decades and decades. So it's not new science. I think the application into this particular realm is what's new. It, you know, the fact that we carry around these devices that can so profoundly change our behavior. I mean, who hasn't found uh, their behavior altered by, by their cell phones these days? And so that's really the opportunity that we have as product designers uh, is to use those those new habits for good. So there hasn't been any profound changes since 2014. I think there's been some revisions, uh, you know, some some things I've expanded upon uh, from the original book that I continue to write about on my blog. And there's a, uh, a few nuanced things. One thing that's different is that I think that the conversation has definitely changed. I think there's a greater awareness now of this is for real. <laughs> when, when I started writing, uh, you know, the book was published in 2014, but I started writing about this in, in 2011, 2012. And it was kind of, you know, the, the general sentiment was, well, these companies just got lucky, right? That, that, that Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and, you know, that they just got lucky, <laughs> you know, these, these wits kids. Uh, but that, I think that conversation has very much changed today. I think we all can, can identify that, these companies were not built by people who just got lucky. They were built by people who really understand consumer psychology. In fact, you know, the, the, if you look at the background to every single one of these people who have founded these, these world-changing companies that are able to change consumer behavior in such a profound way, they come from psychology background and symbolic systems majors. I mean, if you think about, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, everybody knows he was a computer science uh, major before he dropped out of Harvard. His other degree, was, his other major was psychology. Uh, Kevin Systrom's a, a symbolic systems major at Stanford. Uh, you know, uh, Reed Hastings. You know, the list goes on and on. These folks understand psychology very, very well, and they've used that psychology to build the kind of products that keep us engaged. 
And so what we want to do is to learn from them, right? Learn from the best in the business and adopt what they are doing into our own products and services. One observation that you have to make is that it's not necessarily the best product that wins, but instead the first that comes to mind. So there's, there's habitual elements of that. There's marketing elements of that. Are there examples that spring to mind when you think of that, where the best products actually did lose? Are there stories like that that we can really learn from? Sure. I mean, I, I think Silicon Valley graveyards are full of companies that uh, had the best product, the best technology. Uh, I think it's it's absolutely a myth that that we're taught in the product design community that if you just build the best product and that's all you need to do, people will start using it. And that just is not true. I mean, there, there, there's dozens and dozens of examples of companies that, that, that didn't make it, even though they were the best product. I mean, but one that, that it most readily comes to mind is when you think about, you know, many times when I teach a workshop, and I asked folks to raise their hand if they searched with Google in the past 24 hours. And, you know, 99% of the hands will go up in the room. And then I say, well, who searched with Bing in the past 24 hours? The number two search engine, who searched with Bing? And, you know, maybe one hand will go up. Maybe, you know, former Microsoft employee's hand goes up. Uh, and, and that's it. And, you know, it turns out that actually, if you look head to head, that there's been these third-party studies that took the search results of Google versus Bing and they stripped out the branding so that people in the study couldn't see who's, you know, which was which. You couldn't see who was Bing, who was Google, that it was a 50-50 preference split. That when people didn't know which search results came from which search engine, they, they literally couldn't tell the difference between the two. It was 50-50 preference split. Wow. And yet Google has, what is it, 80-90% market share? Mm-hmm. And that's not because they have a better product. It's simply because there is a habit that when I am feeling uncertain that when I, when I need to look up something before I scan my brain, I'm Googling it with little or no conscious thought, purely out of habit. You don't sit there and say, hmm, I wonder if Google is better than Bing or Bing is better than Google. No, you, you just Google it. Right. With little, and, and, and there's no reason other than it's a habit. So what types of products are ripe for this type of approach? Because there has to certain obviously be a frequency element to it. There's not everything that you're going to need to necessarily do or check or an impulse that you're going to have every day. Where, where do you draw the line when you're consulting with people about whether or not they should adopt this approach? Yeah, terrific question. So a lot of times people will say, well, this, does this only apply to consumer web? Because a lot of the examples I talk about in the book are these examples that many of us use, you know, the, the, the usual suspects of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and uh, WhatsApp and, you know, these more consumer web products. However, the same exact rules apply. The exact same four steps of trigger, action, reward, investment apply to the enterprise as well. The line of demarcation is not necessarily enterprise or consumer web. The line is frequent or infrequent. Mm-hmm. That's really the key criteria. That not every business needs to form a habit to be successful. Look, there are lots of companies, lots of business models where it's a one-time transaction, and that's it. Uh, for example, you know, let's take insurance. If you buy car insurance, buying car insurance is never going to become a habit. And that's fine. You can have a very good business uh, not requiring repeat engagement. Of course, the problem with those businesses that don't have repeat engagement is that you are competing tooth and nail, right? So Geico comes out and says, you know, 15 minutes will save you 15% on your car insurance. And then the next company figures out a way to say, hey, you know what, call us and we'll save you 16% on car insurance. And we all have seen this in, in companies we've worked with and worked for. You see that when it's not a, when there isn't a habit formed, when there isn't this repeat engagement to a particular company, that uh, people fight it out, right? Tooth and nail with features and price. 
as opposed to uh, owning the customer's habit is a huge, huge competitive advantage. So it's not that businesses that don't need a habit are somehow bad businesses. It's just that if your business does require a habit, if, if creating unprompted user engagement the same way that Slack and Instagram and WhatsApp and all of these companies that, that, that have these habits formed, you know, if they lost their consumer habit, the company goes out of business, right? Yep. If, if, if Facebook had to pay to market to you, to bring you back, you know, if they had to pay for advertising to bring you back to remember to use it, they couldn't afford that. They'd go out of business. So it's these companies that require repeat engagement, that require habits. And therefore, if you're in that kind of business, you've got to have a hook. So I imagine when you're using products in your own life, unlike uh, the rest of us who may not realize that we're quote unquote hooked, but um, you're studying this a lot more closely. So outside of you know the examples that are been around for a while, you cited in your book, like the Pinterest and Instagrams of the world, are there apps that you've been using today or products that have really caught your attention for this, either in doing it in a new or interesting way? I think that there are a lot of uh, products that are using habits f- for healthy ways that I've been really uh, inspired by and, and using more lately. One app that I use quite a bit is called Pocket. Uh, do, do you use Pocket? Are you yes. With it? Yep, we've used Pocket. Yeah, so Pocket was bought by Firefox, uh, by, by, by I think the Mozilla Foundation, which mm-hmm. also does Firefox a few years ago. But it's it's a great example of a healthy habit. And so what it's doing, you know, it, it, it took an unhealthy habit uh, that I certainly had, and I know many people uh, like me also have, where, you know, you're on the web and you see an article and you, you read it and then, you know, halfway through, you see a link to another article. And so you click that. And so you start reading that and then you click another article, another article. And then 30 minutes later, you, you, you kind of catch yourself and say, oh my God, where did that half hour just go? I was clicking and clicking through articles and I didn't do what I actually wanted to do. And that, you know, that's an example of, of, for me, what was a bad habit. And so now I use Pocket and I have this rule that whenever I see an article I want to read online, I don't read it right then and there. Pocket has a Chrome extension that I, I gives me this little button on my web browser. And every time I see an article I want to read, I don't read it right then. I save it to Pocket. And that that's the habit that I have. And then when I'm doing something uh, that I, I, I need a little bit of extra motivation to do, for example, go to the gym, uh, or when I'm you know, taking a walk, uh, I use that as my reward then to kind of incentivize me to do these other things. It's actually a known technique called temptation bundling, where we use the reward from one thing to get us to do something we maybe don't as much want to do. So I can actually listen to these pocket articles as I'm working out Instead of reading them and wasting time during the day, I can listen to them when I work out. So Pocket happens to be an app that I use almost every day now. Uh, I read a lot of articles while well, I listen to a lot of articles through the, the audio function in Pocket that I think uh, is an example of using the same exact hook uh, for good. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't 
going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So... Speaking to a company that maybe wants to follow in Pocket, for example's footsteps and take this this framework that you know the first thing I think that comes to mind in a more scary way is uh, casinos and all the, mm-hmm. that comes with that, but to use it in a really positive way like this. As you're working uh, in workshops with clients like that, where are they getting stuck on this and why? Like, how can we help someone get this to the finish line? Yeah. So the the first step is to look at the model. You know, the traditional method for figuring out how do we decide what to build is that we ask the hippo, right? The highest paid person's opinion. What should we build next? Uh, you know, but, but, but now we're more enlightened. So now we use lean startup methodologies. Now we talk to customers. We do customer development. We listen to what they say. And that's another way to figure out what we should build. But I think there's actually even a better way because both those techniques have problems. You know, if you, if you just listen to what the boss says they, they should build, you know, that's not a great way to build products. Uh, if you listen to, God forbid, to the investors, that's the worst way <laughs> to build product. <laughs> but even listening to customers, you know, there's so many things that customers will say they want, but then in actuality, when you build it for them, they don't use, right? Because, because what people say and what they do tends to be completely different. And so what I propose is to answer this age-old question in product design of what do we build next, we need to look at some, some good, sound consumer psychology to help us inform what features we need based on some kind of model that informs what might be missing in our product. And so the very first step is to ask yourself these five fundamental questions to make sure you have a hook. And this can be done with pen and paper. This doesn't require any engineering know-how or design expertise. It's just sitting down with a pen and paper and asking yourself, number one, what's the internal trigger? What's the itch, the moment in time when someone would need to use your product? That's what we're going to attach the habit to. Then number two, what's the external trigger, the prompt in their life that tells them what to do next? Then number three, what's the action and how could it be made simpler? Uh, Number four is the reward. Uh, How can we give the user what they want? How can we scratch that itch and yet leave them wanting more? And then finally, how do we get the user to invest to increase the likelihood of them using the product in the future? And so it's those five fundamental questions that basically make up the outline of my book right there. Of course, you know, how you answer those questions and what those terms mean, it requires a lot more explanation. There's a whole book about it, of course, (laughs) but it's, it starts by fundamentally asking those those five questions. Now, where teams are deficient depends on your specific product. As long as you meet that requirement of a product that needs to be used within about a week's time or less, the, the research shows us that that's really the cutoff, that if your product isn't used within a week's time or less, it's almost impossible to form a new consumer habit around it. So that's that's probably the number one criteria when I, you know, I do my consulting calls and I, I, I work with clients 
the very first step is to figure out, okay, is the behavior that you want to create in your users, is that something that you would expect to, to occur within a week's time or less? And if so, great. Now ask those five fundamental questions. And, you know, there, there isn't one of those questions that always falls down. It tends to be very contextually specific to the companies. You know, some companies will have, uh, you know, they can't tell me what the internal trigger is, or they can't figure out a good way to prompt with an external trigger, or the action is too difficult, or the reward isn't rewarding, or the uh, they can't find a way to get the user to invest in a way that makes sense. So, you know, which of those categories falls down is specific to the application, but the, the most important step is to just ask these questions in the first place and prompt this conversation. That's really, really actionable and great advice there. One thing I want to make sure that we we cover here today is that oftentimes, and probably too many times, there are ways in which this framework is used that sort of tilts too far in a way that actually isn't as positive long-term for users. So I think speaking to a lot of the product builders and designers that are working on these types of things, a lot of these start with really good intentions, the ones that lose their way. Where do you think things go wrong and what are the steps that you'd recommend people taking to check themselves in these ways? Yeah, so so in the book, in Hooked, I have this chapter on the morality of manipulation. Now, we, we need to be honest with ourselves here. All design is a form of manipulation. Uh, whether you're successful or not is a different story, right? So, you know, just to put this in perspective, almost never do I hear from a company that tells me that, oh my God, people are using our products too much, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that, you know, should you be so lucky that that ever happened? Yep. I mean, that's, that's I, I, I never hear that, that people tell me, oh, you know what? I think we're, we're addicting people. Um, so, so the vast majority of people tell me, you know, our product is awesome, but nobody gives a shit. Why are people actually using it? <laughs> uh, so that's, that's, you know, let's put this in perspective here. Very, very few companies can build the kind of products that, people use to an extent that they might ever harm themselves. But, you know, on the other hand, we need to zoom out and say, how do we ethically use this stuff? And I think, I think you know, the answer that, there's a few answers to this question, but uh, the test that I put in the book that I say, look, if you care about ethics, if you care about using persuasion in a way that's, that's ethical, then you have to ask yourself these two questions. And the two questions are, number one, do you think that what you're working on materially improves people's lives? And only you can answer that question, right? This isn't a way for you to judge other people or people to judge you. But, you know, for you yourself, is what you're working on materially improving people's lives? But that's not good enough, right? You don't get to pass go yet. You also have to ask yourself this question of, am I the user? Mm -hmm. Am I the user? The reason I want you to answer that question is because I want you to break the first rule of drug dealing. Do you know, by the way, the first rule of drug dealing? I I don't know the first rule of drug dealing. Do you tell? That may be a good thing. (laughs) The first rule of drug dealing is never get high on your own supply. And so the reason I want you to break that rule is because if there are any deleterious effects to using these products, you're going to be the first to know about it. It doesn't mean that your product won't have negative, negative effects right? It's that you will know. And we're seeing this today with Facebook, right? We're seeing how many people who worked at Facebook are now saying, you know what? This is very good for me. <laughs> As we all are waking up to some of the negative consequences of these devices that are, are too persuasive in, in some ways. So I think that's, that's a good thing. You should be the user. It also gives you a huge competitive advantage that, you know, again, it's not that you have to do these things. It's that if you care about ethics, you should do these things. And you have a tremendous impact uh, on your likelihood to succeed if you yourself are the user. Because the hardest thing in, in product design is figuring out what the user wants. 
And so you have a huge competitive advantage if you are the user, right? Again, not every product has that luxury, mm-hmm. but I think your odds of success uh, go way, way up if you are yourself your user. And if you look at the archetype of who built all these companies I just talked about, Slack and Pinterest and Instagram and Facebook and WhatsApp and Twitter, all of them were built by people who passed that two-part test. That they all, if I think if you would have asked each and every one of them, they believed they were building something that materially improves people's lives and they themselves were the users. And I, I call those folks facilitators. And I think if you can put yourself in that category, you can use these techniques full tilt. Uh, again, that doesn't mean you may not, you know, you may have some consequences, unforeseen consequences to using your product that you didn't foresee. I think we're seeing that right now with, with some aspects of, of social media use. Yep. But I think you can do it with a clean conscience going forward, knowing that these techniques are, are tactics that you use passing that two-part test. The other thing I would just quickly add is that we can use regret as a test. So when, you know, I, I talked earlier about the manipulation matrix and asking yourself those two questions about what you're working on. But then we can even go to a finer level of granularity for each specific tactic that we might use. And so when it comes to, you know, a bunch of designers sitting in a room trying to figure out how do we get people to do a certain thing, you know, how do we make sure that we don't use uh, tactics that people would not appreciate? Right. So so, don't don't do unto others what they would not want done to them, I think is how you phrase it in your blog post. Right, right. Which is different from the golden rule, right? Don't do things to others that you don't want them to do to you. That's the golden rule. But I would change it a little bit, as you, as you mentioned, to, to make it about what they don't want done to themselves. And I think that's, that's a very, very important distinction. It also uh, it is, is very, very good business because, you know, we can, uh, in the short term, you know, you can trick people. Uh, you can use these, these techniques, dark patterns, for example, to get people to do things. But in the long term, that never works. Uh, that eventually people figure out, hey, you know what? This is not what I want to do. I don't like using this. And this is, you know, this is not helping me in my life. And then, of course, they stop using the product. And so I think that, that that's a question we have to ask from time to time, you know, with every technique that we implement is this this regret question is, you know, if the user knew everything that we knew about what is about to happen, would they still do this behavior? And if the, and you can test that just like we do user testing with all sorts of different design ideas. We can also test if they, you know, once they knew what they were going to do, would they still do that behavior? And so it's very testable to do that. And so have you ever seen companies actually take the step of correcting or helping to manage this type of overuse that crosses the line? So dark patterns, yeah, we see companies doing that all the time. In fact, if you go to darkpattern.org, there's a collection, there's like this wall of shame of all these companies that have used some of these patterns. And then, you know, in this day and age, you know, the benefit of the fact that we're so connected is that when somebody dares use one of these dark patterns and get someone to do something that they later regret, they don't just stop using the product. They tell all their friends about what a shithead you are for using <laughs> these techniques. And so you can see this hall of shame of all sorts of companies who have used these techniques. Now, the good news is that, you know, almost all of them, once they're shamed, they, they, they stop, right? They don't use these techniques anymore. Uh, with very rare exceptions, uh, that that tends to happen is that a company is shamed into uh, changing their ways. And I think that's a very good thing. They they should of course change their ways. But of course, you know, the, what we hope to do is to not have to be shamed in the first place by using this regret test to screen out the potential use of some of these techniques that where where they they're not uh, useful. But I do want to mention though, it's not the technique itself. Mm-hmm. So uh, a technique that is scammy and sketchy in one application can be perfectly welcomed in another. You know, for example, uh, Snapchat has been getting a lot of grief lately because they use this streaks technique. 
where, uh, you know, if, if you, if you send a message for X number of days, you get a little reward that says, Hey, you've been, you know, you've been consistent over X number of days, which is exactly what Duolingo has used to great effect to help people learn. That's exactly the example I was going to, uh, going to say here is that it's, it's, it's many times it's the ends, not the means. The means are many times are, are neutral. It's about regret because in one application, it's something that people would regret and say, oh, that's manipulative. But in another application, it's, wow, that was fantastic. It helped me stay on task. It helped me learn this language. So whether it be through your writing, speaking, workshops, whatever it may be, what's the most important takeaway you want to leave product builders with when it comes to creating habits in the right way? What's maybe often missed or not considered enough? I think that the entire uh, field of consumer psychology and behavior design is not considered enough. <laughs> I think, you know, I think it used to be that product design was was engineer led, uh, that it was first and foremost what could technology do, and then we could figure out the problems it would solve. And I think now the product design community has shifted into more uh, of a design led process by which we figure out first what's the problem, then what technologies can we use to solve that problem. And I, I think we need to go even a step further that deeper design starts inside the user's brain. Starts inside with you know what what not not just what problems can customers and users articulate to us, but what are the needs that they have that they don't even know they need themselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think that it's bigger than just changing behavior. This is about fundamentally helping people live better lives. This is why the work we do is so important. This isn't just a job like any other. In our profession, we can help improve the way people live. I mean, that's amazing. How many jobs can do that? And so we never need to forget that that's our mission, that that's what we need to do every day. When we build our products, we are fundamentally finding ways to help people live better lives. And part of that requires us to, to understand them in ways that they may not understand themselves. Nir, I could not agree more. And thank you so much for joining us today. You mentioned a new book coming at the top of the show. So I got to ask, where can our listeners go to follow along with your research, your writing, and when can we expect that? Yeah, thanks. So uh, my blog is at nearandfar.com. It's spelled like my first name, N-I-R and far.com. My first book, which is available, you know, wherever books are sold, is called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And my new book, which will be out hopefully sometime this year, uh, still working with publishers on that, is called Indistractable, How to Master the Skill of the Century. The title might change a little bit, but that's the tentative title is Indistractable. And it's all about how do we deal in a world with with all these distractions, right? So in Hooked, I talked about how to build these habit-forming products. And, you know, the question I always got was, that's great, but man, it seems like these products are taking over my life. How do I put them in their place? And so Indistractable is about not just technological distraction. Of course, there's a lot of time spent on the technological distractions, but all sorts of distractions. How do we get ourselves to do the things we want to do by designing our behavior? I'm going to guess that's based on the talk you gave at the Next Web last year, which I'd encourage our listeners to uh, go look up online. It's a great one. Can't wait to read the book. Nir, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.